preparing to write this sermon this week, I, I realized that you might not be used to this. And so I thought I should just kind of explain the method a little bit and just give a little brief explanation of why I believe that this is the best way to preach. According to 2 Timothy 2, and, and you could flip there if you want in your Bible this morning. 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. And so Scripture is the product of God's breath. God is the source of Scripture. And that's why we call it the Word of God. It's because it truly is His Word. And so when we listen to Scripture, we're listening to God. And when we obey Scripture, we're obeying God. And that same verse, Second Timothy there, goes on to tell us that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and also all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. That the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. And so Scripture, all of Scripture, is profitable for teaching. And Scripture is what equips us for every good work. Scripture works in us to make us complete. In Hebrews 4 and verse 12, it tells us that Scripture is living and active. And it's living because God has spoken it such that it will transform us. I I want you to just turn back to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this is a really important verse on Scripture as well. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says this, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so notice there at the end of the verse that the word of God is at work in the believers. The the Word itself is presented as being active, alive, and it's doing a work in those who believe. And next, notice that Paul and his associates preached the Word. Paul's uh, Paul communicated the Word. God's Word comes to us through human vessels. God breathed out His Word through human authors. Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Paul, and, and Paul thanks God here in this text that, that God has worked in such a way that when the Thessalonians heard Paul, they received it as the word of God and not the word of Paul or the word of men. And so scripture is unique in this sense because there's really, there's two authors. There's a human author and there's a divine author. And these two authors aren't divided. They're, they're one. Okay. And so ultimately scripture is the Word of God. And one of the best ways to see that the human author and the divine author are one is that often what God says and what Scripture says are used interchangeably. And so I just want to give you a couple of examples of this, and, and we could go back to Genesis chapter 12. Notice there, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abraham, and so the the Lord is speaking, Yahweh is speaking to Abraham, 
And he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. And so here God is speaking and Moses wrote what God said. Now, Paul says in Galatians 3.8 that the Scripture preached this very thing to Abraham. And so listen to Galatians 3.8. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And so what God says is the same as what Scripture says. Again, we could see this in Romans 9. And verse 17, in Romans 9, 17, Paul says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so in that text, Scripture is speaking to Pharaoh. But this is from Exodus 9, 16. And in that context, God is speaking through Moses. And it works the other way around too. In Genesis 2, 24, This is one of the key verses on marriage. Moses summarized the first marriage, Genesis 2.24, saying, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And in Matthew 19, Jesus quotes that same passage, and he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so what Moses says there, or what Scripture says in Genesis 2.24, is now attributed to something that God himself has said. And so what Moses said is what Scripture said is what God said. And so these three things, God, Scripture, and the biblical authors, they're interchangeable. What one says is the same as what the other says. And and the biblical authors, Paul and Moses and and Joshua and whoever wrote Scripture, they they wrote to a particular people at a particular time for particular reasons or a particular reason. And they're trying to communicate something to someone for a reason. Okay, And so if we can get into their minds and understand what they are saying, then... And, and why they're saying what they're saying, then we can understand how they wanted the original uh, readers to respond. And if we can understand how the authors wanted the original readers to respond, we can figure out how that relates to us and how we should respond to God through His Word. In, in other words, if we understand what God says, we also understand what the human author said. And the, the way to get to understand what God says is through the mind of the human author. And the best way to understand what the human author is saying is to trace his argument through an entire book of the Bible. You know, you just think about it this way. You wouldn't open up any other book just halfway in the middle of the book and just kind of pick out a few verses and and say this is what the author says, right? We don't read books that way. And, And it's really the same with the Bible. And what I'm trying to do then as the preacher is to follow the author's line of thought, And if we can understand the author, we can understand what God is communicating to us. And and what God is communicating to us through the Word, that is what changes us. 
And so I hope that makes sense a little bit for you this morning. What, what we need is God's Word. We, we come here in Sunday mornings to hear from God, not from me. Um, you know, I don't even care about my own opinion. What, what I want to find out is what is God saying in His Word. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do my best to study, to understand God's Word, and then I'm going to come and I'm going to try to show you what the Bible itself is saying, what God Himself is saying through His Word. And I'm going to try to explain the text. I'm going to try to illustrate the text. I'm going to try to show how what the text says fits our context, our lives. And then I'm going to exhort you to obey God from the text. But I don't want to say anything here that the Bible doesn't say. I want you to see that what I say comes from Scripture and that what I say is really what the Bible says. And then you're hearing from God and not from me. And by going verse by verse, I'm not only going to follow the logic of the biblical author, but I'm also going to let God lead us through His Word. And we're going to encounter sections of Scripture that I might never choose to preach if it was just up to me. If it, if it was up to me, there's certain areas that I would just skip because they're hard to understand or, or maybe they talk about topics that are uncomfortable for me and I might pick other topics that I like talking about. But if I just follow through the Scripture, we're going to just let God lead us through His Word on what He wants to say. And this is called expository preaching. What, what I'm trying to do is expose the text. Expose what's in the text. Bring what's in the text out. Because again, we don't need my ideas, my thoughts, or Rob's thoughts, or Lauren's thoughts, or whoever's preaching. We don't, we don't need to hear from men. What we really need is to hear from God. And that's what's going to make us grow, is when, when God's Word is understood, it changes our lives. And so today, we're in one of those passages that I might be tempted to skip if, if it was up to me But actually, this is really a very, very important text in the Gospel of Matthew. And so if you're not there already, I'd I'd invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, starting at verse 1, says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. 
And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiad. Abiad, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliad. Eliad, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Matin. And Matin, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Matthew begins his book with a genealogy. And he, he traces the line of Abraham to David to Jesus. And what this does is it ties Jesus into history. And, and not just history in general, but into biblical history. All of God's working, really from the beginning, comes to a climax with Jesus. And Matthew is sing- signaling to his fellow Jews that the promised Messiah, and in, in Greek it's the Christ or Christos, that that he is here in the person of Jesus. With this, some 4,000 years of biblical history comes to fruition. Matthew starts with Abraham likely because he's writing for Jews or, or Christians who were formerly Jews, and they wouldn't need to go back any further than Abraham. Luke also has a genealogy in, in Luke chapter 3, and Luke works backwards. Luke begins with Jesus and works backwards all the way to Adam. Luke wants to show that Jesus is the Son of Man, and, and Luke wrote for the Gentiles, and so he goes backwards all the way to Adam. But Matthew wants to show that Jesus is the Christ, the King of Israel. And so he works from Abraham all the way up to Jesus Christ. Now there's some distinctive features in this text, and really I thought the best way to outline this would just be to highlight these features and uh, they're going to go uh, from longer ones to shorter ones. And so the, the first point is a little bit longer, but then after that they get a little bit quicker. Uh, but hopefully these are in some kind of a logical order. And so we're just going to call this this morning six features of this genealogy that we shouldn't miss. Six features that we shouldn't miss. And the first one is just simply the Christ. Our text begins with Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then look at the end there. This this text really begins and ends with Jesus Christ. And in verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And then again in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And so verse 1 starts with Jesus, and it goes back to David, and then it goes further back to Abraham. And then verse 2 begins at Abraham and works its way up through David back to Jesus. And so it goes Jesus, David, Abraham, Abraham, David, Jesus. And so the focus is on Jesus. Jesus is the beginning and the end. Really, Christ is the beginning and the end. And three times in this short 17 verses, Jesus is called Christ. 
Now to us, when we say Jesus Christ, it kind of sounds like Jesus Christ, like Mike Hovland, first name Mike, last name Hovland. But Christ wasn't Jesus, Jesus' last name. Uh, th- there were a lot of Jesuses in that day. It was a very popular name at that time. And, and so the way that they would distinguish, they didn't use last names, they would have called him Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the son of Joseph. But very few in Jesus' day would have called him Jesus Christ. Very few during his time on the earth. And Christ, as I already said earlier, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. Christ is a, a title. It's not a last name. It's, it's the Messiah or the Christ. And that word means the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. And in the Old Testament, there were three kinds of people who were anointed for special services, for special roles that God had given them. And, and those three types of people who were anointed were prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed with oil before they began their ministry. And so they were the anointed ones, ones who were anointed. But throughout Scripture, there was always the promise of the anointed one, the Messiah, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And as the ultimate prophet, the Messiah would come and speak God's fullest revelation to God's people. And His Word was going to be looked at, looked to as, as a word that was greater than the Word of God through Moses. And as the ultimate priest, the Messiah would represent the people to God. Unlike the Levitical priest, the Messiah would be a priest forever. And the most astute theologians of the Old Testament would have likely understood that somehow, some way, the Messiah would both be the sacrifice and the one who makes the sacrifice to take away the sins of his people. And as the ultimate king, the Messiah would come to fulfill the promise to David, a son on the throne of Israel, and again forever. The one through whom God's original command to rule and subdue the earth would be fulfilled. And so scripture after scripture throughout the Old Testament looked forward to the coming of this ultimate anointed one. The one through whom salvation would come. The one through whom God's plan would be accomplished. And I want to do here then this morning is just kind of trace a little bit of this biblical storyline for you, kind of to give you a sense of the expectation that we would have if we understood the Old Testament. And the the first hint of this coming Messiah is right away immediately in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, God did not immediately destroy them. Instead, God promised or Maybe we should say God threatened the serpent in Genesis 3.15. And God speaks to the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve, and He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so the offspring of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. Many translations have the seed of the woman instead of the offspring of the woman. But the, the, the whole story of Scripture then follows the seed, follows the offspring of the woman. And the question that comes is, who is this going to be? Who is this one who's going to bruise the serpent's head? And you can almost feel the tension as you follow the biblical storyline and as the, uh, uh, there's a, a behind the scenes conflict that seems to be happening as the Satan works to destroy the seed, but God's plan continues along. And the first kind of hostility that happens is Cain kills his brother Abel. 
But then Eve bears another son, Seth. And then the, the whole world plunges into sin. And God is, is going to destroy the world, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then the seed is, is obviously now going to have to come through Noah and his family. In Genesis chapter 11, at the Tower of Babel, or the Tower of Babel, God confuses everyone's languages. And then we wonder, well, when this seed comes, how is everyone going to know? How they, they can't even communicate with one another anymore. And then we're introduced immediately after that, in Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to Abraham. And God makes a promise to Abraham. We, we already read it from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Let me just read it again. God says, Genesis 12, 2, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God reiterates this in Genesis chapter 17. And uh, it says there, Genesis 17, starting at verse 1, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may greatly multiply you. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Now notice that that there's this promise again to Abraham's offspring or to Abraham's seed. And even the mention of, of kings coming from Abraham reminds us again of the original uh, creation mandate that mankind was to rule and subdue the earth. And the covenant includes land as well. Kings need a realm to rule over. And so the seed line continues through Abraham to Isaac to Jacob who is then renamed Israel. And Israel had 12 children and they would become the nation of Israel. And through Joseph and the whole Joseph narrative, Israel and his sons end up in Egypt. And before he died, Israel blessed his sons, and Judah becomes the son through whom this offspring that we're looking for is going to come. And so Genesis 49, verse 8, Israel, or Jacob, is, is blessing his son. And he says to Judah, Genesis 49, 8, Judah... Your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so note there that the scepter will not depart from Judah, and the scepter is the king's staff. And so God is saying a king is going to come through Judah. And a generation in Egypt then arose that didn't know Joseph, if you remember the story, and all of a sudden Israel is in bondage. 
And once again, the seed is threatened when Pharaoh has all the male children killed. But God preserved Moses. And Moses delivered the nation out of Egypt. Uh, and and he, he becomes then the prototypical prophet. He spoke God's word to the people. And he wrote God's word for the people. And Moses prophesied of a day when the Lord would raise up another prophet like him from the midst of Israel. And this one is going to be known as the prophet. This is Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord at, uh, your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so we're looking for the prophet as well now. And Moses also knew that one day Israel would have a king. And before they entered the land, he told them that what the king would do and he gave them laws about what the king should and shouldn't do. And of course, David became the king after the whole Saul episode. And David was from the tribe of Judah. And so if we go back then to our text, we're just kind of tracing the line. We can see that we're about halfway through uh, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and, and Zerah by Tamar. Remember, Judah became Israel and Perez and, and Zerah were twins that he had. And those twins went with him into Egypt. And then we're in the period of the judges and it goes, and Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And so, so far, if we're following the biblical storyline, we're looking for the seed, the ultimate prophet who would mediate the word, the one who would speak God's word without the, the thundering like at Mount Sinai. And really the whole Levitical priesthood too, it, it pointed to the need of a better priest, of a priest who could actually and permanently remove sin. And for the blessing of Abraham to come, the curse of sin had to be removed. And so the ultimate priest, we're, we're looking forward to this ultimate priest. And we're also looking forward now to the, the ultimate king, the one through whom God would, would reign. We're looking for a king greater than David, the ultimate king, one who's going to endure forever. And, and this person is the Messiah. And what Matthew is telling us then is that the Messiah has come. The Messiah has arrived. And this brings us up to David. And that's really the next feature that we shouldn't miss here. And so number two is the king. So we saw number one, the Christ. Number two, now we see the king, or if you like all seas, we could call it the crown. Uh, but Matthew in this gospel emphasizes kingship. We're going to see kingly terms. And, and Matthew uses king and kingdom more than Mark or Luke or John. 
And beginning right there in verse 6, Jesse, the father of David, the king. Now all the people who were listed after David up to the exile, they were kings as well. But David was always the ideal king. And shortly after David, the kingdom was divided into two. There was Judah and Israel after, after David, after Solomon's reign. And so the Messiah is, is the one who would one day restore the Davidic kingdom. He would one day unite the twelve tribes and make Israel a blessing to the nations and to the whole world. And just like God had entered into covenant with Abraham, God also entered into covenant with David. And this is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Why don't you turn there and let's see the Davidic covenant. And what we're just, we're just tracing God's plan through history. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up my people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off your, all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disrupted no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appoint judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you and you shall come, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him and she, he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. And so again, we see the promise of the offspring in verse 12, I will raise up your offspring after you. And the seed would have a kingdom. And initially, it looks like Solomon's going to be the one, but Solomon was not the seed. Solomon was not the promised one who would establish this kingdom. Note that this kingdom that we're speaking about is a forever kingdom, an eternal kingdom before the Lord. And we know now that this is called the Davidic covenant and that this will be fulfilled through 
Jesus Christ. This is all pointing forward to Jesus Christ. And so Matthew traces the royal line from David the king through Jeconiah. Uh, Jeconiah is also called uh, Coniah or Jehoachin. And he was the king of Judah who was taken into exile in Babylon. And from Jehoachin on, there were really no more kings in Judah or Israel. And so here's again an, another chance, another, another threat to the seed line is that Israel was taken into exile, into Babylon, and, and would they be a nation again? Would, uh, another threat to the seed happens here. But the prophets during the exile told of the son of David, the one who would come and reunite Israel and reign on the restored throne of David. And of course, any Jew who came along after that who, who claimed to be the Messiah would have to be a son of David. He would have to show that he was of the kingly line. And that's what we see next in what we're going to call number three, the count. So look at verse, actually let's go back to our text and look at verse 17. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now there's three things we want to look at here, and Matthew has these three sets of 14 generations, and and somehow this is really significant to Matthew. Matthew really thinks this is something, there's 14, 14, and 14. But there's, there's three, maybe, maybe two or three difficulties here that we want to work at. First of all, Matthew's genealogy is actually different from Luke's genealogy. I don't, I don't know if you know that or would have known that, but Matthew and Luke have different genealogies of Jesus Christ. Second thing we want to look at is that Matthew left out some king's names to make the 14. And the third thing that we want to think about is, as far as difficulties go is that if you add those names up, it doesn't actually add up to 14. And so it kind of makes you go, huh, that's kind of weird. What, what do we do with that? Now, sadly, I, I don't have all the answers for you. Nobody seems to have all the answers. But let's see if we can kind of sort some of these out, starting with the first one. And so, first of all, let's just look at this. Matthew's count is different than Luke's. Remember, Luke's genealogy, you could go to it. Actually, Luke chapter 3, you might want to have your finger in both places here. And I might want to do that as well. <clears throat> So Luke chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 1. Luke starts at Jesus and then he works his way backwards through history all the way to Adam, the first man. And Luke starts his genealogy in Luke 3.23. And it says there, When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. And so Jesus was was not the son of Joseph because he was virgin born, right? He was the son of Mary. And both Luke and Matthew make that clear. Jesus in Luke is only supposed, you know, people thought that he was the son of Joseph, but he was virgin born. And uh, Matthew says in Matthew 1.16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And the of whom there in Matthew 1.16, in, in of whom Jesus was born, is feminine in Greek. Greek. I don't know if German has this, but Greek and French have masculine and feminine um, nouns. And so of whom in Greek clearly points to Mary and not to Joseph. And so Jesus was born of Mary. 
And, and even when it says there was born, that's the only time that a passive is used. Every other time it's Jacob fathered Joseph and, and so on and so forth. David fathered Solomon. But here Jesus was born through Mary. And so both Luke and Matthew make it clear that Jesus was born through Mary and not through Joseph. But, but here's the problem. I don't know if you can see it there, but Matthew says that Jacob was the father of Joseph. If you look at Matthew 1.16, Jacob the father of Joseph. But Luke says that Eli was the father of Joseph. And so, you know, I'm not a scientist or anything, but I, I know enough to know that you can only have one father, right? Only, only one can be the true father. And so who was Jesus' grandpa? Was it Eli or was it Jacob? Now also, and it's you'd almost need a chart to see this, but from Shelatiel to Jesus, the, the two lists in Matthew and Luke are different. And so what's going on here? And, the, and there's basically two views on this. The first view is that Luke is giving Mary's genealogy and Matthew gives us Joseph's genealogy. And that, that kind of works. And, and that would definitely explain the different lines. Mary would have a different father than Joseph would have had. And, and so that, that could be what's happening here. Uh, the difficulty with, with the view that, that Luke is giving Mary's genealogy is that in the context, Luke doesn't even mention Mary. Uh, Luke doesn't even mention Mary at all, at all. And in fact, if you look again at verse 23, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. And so it starts with Joseph and, and goes from there. And so the other view, and I don't think that first view is the best view, although it's very popular. The other view, probably the most popular view, is that Matthew gives us the royal lineage of Joseph. And Luke gives us Joseph's actual physical descent. And so Matthew gives the royal lineage of Joseph through the succession of kings, and Luke gives Joseph's actual physical descent. And, and this fits well with Matthew's focus on Jesus as the king and Luke's focus on Jesus as the Son of Man. Now, when a, when a king doesn't have children, right? Just think, and it's probably a little bit difficult to think about this on a Sunday morning, but when a king doesn't have children, the, the, the royal line doesn't follow the natural line of birth because that king didn't have any children. And so another relative becomes king. And so that might explain what's happened here. Now, another thing that could be happening here as we try to figure out this confusion is that, that Israel had this thing called leveret marriage. And we, we saw that with, with Ruth and, and Boaz. Uh, I don't know if you know that story, but, but if a, if a Jew, died and left a widow, then often what would happen was an unmarried brother would marry that first man and bear children to keep the line of the, the, the brother who had died. And that's how they, they continued their inheritance and, and the, the, the distribution of the land. And so th this could be Joseph's, uh, Joseph's father. It could have worked like this. And, and just try to follow this if you can. Joseph's father could have died and his, and his name would have been Jacob. Joseph's father, Jacob, could have died. And then his brother, Jacob's brother, Eli, could have married Jacob's widow. And then he would have bore children. And those children would have been counted 
as Jacob's as far as the royal descent goes and the, and the inheritance laws go, but he would have been counted as Eli's son according to the biology. Now, if you were able to follow that, that is awesome. I, w- I was thinking about this this morning and I was thinking, it's like when I try to follow you guys telling me how you're all related. <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm not sure how that works, but uh, that's great. And hopefully you did a little better than that. So um, it's hard to think about on a Sunday morning, but all of this is hard to think about. But but what we do see is that we, we can't prove this. We, we can't prove these theories, but, but neither can a skeptic prove other than this. And so this, this kind of understanding explains the, the difficulties and, uh, and it can't be proven otherwise. And so that's the first thing we wanted to deal with. Secondly, Matthew omits kings in his list. Um, and so we just want to look at that. If you, if you went to Chronicles and you compared uh, the, the list of kings in Chronicles and you went over to Matthew, you would notice that Matthew skipped over some kings to get to his 14. Luke has, for example, 21 generations from David to Shealtiel, and Matthew has only 15 generations. And where Matthew says in, in chapter 1 and verse 2, Abraham was the father of, that, that idea of the father of there could actually just mean an ancestor of. And so Luke's not claiming to give us an exhaustive chronology of the kings. He's just saying that one was the ancestor of the other. And most people believe that both Matthew and Luke omit a few generations, and so that's not really a problem at all. Matthew's just giving us a selective list of ancestors that prove that Jesus came from Abraham and that he's a son of David. And the third issue then on the count is that Matthew's 14 doesn't actually add up to 14. If you add up every generations in the three groups, you will get something like 13, 14, 13. Now it depends on how you count because people count all kinds of different ways to try to get what they think they're supposed to get. And, and so sometimes you count people twice or whatever, but typically you're going to get 13, 14, 13. And theologians throughout the centuries have tried to figure out how to count 14 out of this, but there's really no smooth way to count up to 14. And, and Matthew knows how to count to 14. So, so what's Matthew doing? Why, why is 14 so significant? Well, the easy answer is just simply that, that I don't really know. Um, there, there's some theories that are kind of interesting. I just, I don't know. If you're really curious about it, you can ask me after the message and, and I'll give you the, the three views on that. But fourthly then, let's look at the covenants. We saw the, the king. Now we're going to look at the covenants. And, and one of the things that might be helpful to notice as we, as we continue to look into this genealogy is these three periods of time that Matthew really highlights by these 14 generations. Oh, I didn't say something. Did I say something here? Normal counting, normal counting in the ancient Near East was often, they would often count this way, 13, 14, 13. And so let me, just let me quote one commentator here. He says, the actual number of generations in the three parts to the genealogy are 13, 14, 13, respectively. But ancient counting often alternated between inclusive and exclusive reckoning. And so that was normal. And you'll find other ancient Near Eastern documents where they would, they would say 14, but it'd be 13, 14, 13, 14, 13. And that apparently is just a normal practice. But why does Matthew highlight this? Well, it could be that one of the reasons he highlights this is just to highlight these covenants and, and the time periods 
in these three groups. And so the first time period begins with Abraham, and that's the time of the Abrahamic covenant, that God would bless Abraham and make a nation of his offspring, and through Abraham and his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We saw that already. The second period of time there is the period of David and the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant promised a king from David's line who would rule on David's throne forever. And the prophets really built on this theme. And so I just want to read you some more scriptures on the Davidic covenant. And listen to these, and and you'll notice that many of these things have yet to be fulfilled in the prophetic timeline. And so Psalm 89 and verse 3 David is speaking, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. That's where the Davidic covenant is actually called a covenant in Psalm 89. Isaiah 9 and verse 6, you probably read this often around Christmas time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so we see that the government is going to be on the Messiah's shoulders, that he is going to rule and reign from the throne of David forever. Jeremiah 23 and verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely We're still waiting for that day when all of Judah will be saved, when Israel will will dwell securely without enemies attacking. And in this time by which uh, He will be called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where He had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Or listen to Ezekiel 37.21. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land and on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them, uh, king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. This, this unification of Israel has, has yet to happen. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Verse 24 continues, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. I will be, it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. 
I will be their God. They shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. And if you're following this, what what we see is this is what every Jew was expecting when the Messiah would come. They were expecting this king to come that was going to establish Israel forever. And and they were expecting this, this overthrow of the Roman government and this salvation of Israel. And so this is what the Jews were expecting. And Matthew understands this and knows this. And so he has to explain to them how come this hasn't happened when Jesus came. Now, the, the third time period that, that's in our, our chronology there is the time of the exile. And during that time, it was the time when the prophets looked forward to God bringing Israel back to their land. And they foresaw that God would do this under a new covenant. And so we've seen the Abrahamic covenant, there's the Davidic covenant, and now there's this anticipation of the new covenant. And Jesus is the one through whom all of God's covenant promises, the the Abrahamic, the Davidic, and the new covenant are going to be fulfilled. Now there's really just two more features that we want to look at here, and then then one of them is really just a closing one. And so number five, that's, a, that's just a, Matthew's highlighting the covenants, number four. Number five, these are the companions. We're, we're going to call this the companions. And I don't know if you noticed it when we read through this morning, but there were four ladies plus Mary in this genealogy. And it's very unusual to have ladies, to have women in an ancient Near Eastern genealogy. Plus, when you look at these women, they are unusual women as well. And so Matthew chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So there's the first woman. Verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And so we have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. And these women are introduced likely to kind of warm the reader up to the idea that's really throughout this gospel, that the gospel is for all nations and for all peoples. The the Jews had largely forgotten about their the idea of them being a blessing to the nations. They they had a very exclusive mentality. The, The nations were their enemies, not their mission field. And, and sinners were outcasts, not, not people to welcome in. And so by including these women, Matthew shows that the messianic line includes Gentile women and Gentile women who weren't just women, but who were sinners. And so Matthew's just subtly introducing here that Jesus came to save those who were outside, those who were outcasts. He came to save sinners. And God providentially worked and He brought these women into the line of the seed. And so as we think about these women, Tamar tricked Judah into having relations with her that resulted in the twins Perez and Zerah. She pretended to be a prostitute in order to make this thing happen. And Rahab actually was a prostitute and she also lied about the spies and both Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. They were Canaanite women. Ruth was a Moabite uh, a faithful lady, but from a people who were enemies of Israel. Plus, uh, if you read that little the incident there at the threshing floor where she covered or uncovered Boaz's feet, perhaps, 
And I, I don't know if we can be dogmatic about it, but perhaps that wasn't an entirely pure thing that happened there. And then we have the wife of Uriah. We know her as Bathsheba, right? The wife, wife of Uriah. And whenever you hear Uriah, it's always Uriah the Hittite, right? Uriah the Hittite. And it could be that Uriah's wife was a Hittite as well, a, another foreigner. Now, Scripture seems to blame David for what happened between the wife of Uriah and, uh, and David, but still, this reminds us of sin in Jesus' genealogy. Jesus, the, the Messiah, came and was born of sinners. And this prepares us for what we're going to see next week, that, that Jesus came to save His people from their sins, Matthew one twenty one. Jesus came to save sinners, and His people also include the Gentiles, non-Israelite people. And we're going to see in this Gospel that Jesus will save all who call upon Him, all who come to Him. In Matthew 11, verse 28, He says, Come to Me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." And the women here prepare the way for this gracious Savior. And then to bring this message to a close, I want to just zoom back out again. What are we supposed to draw from these 17 verses of the Gospel? And we want to call this the consummation. The consummation. Matthew wants us to see God's plan. God's mission has come together in the person of Jesus Christ. And really, all of history up to that moment was leading to this, the arrival of Christ the King. All of history since then, since the death and resurrection of Christ, really looks back on this moment, this event. And so God's plan of salvation centers on Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate King. He is the one mediator between God and man. And there is no salvation apart from Him. And if this Jesus is the Christ, then it is of utmost importance what we do with Him. How we respond to Him. If Jesus is central in God's plan, He must be central in our lives. Remember what Moses said about the prophet? Whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. We will be judged based on if we listen to God's Word through Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus want us to do? He wants us to come to Him. He wants us to, to come to God through Him. He wants us to forsake our sin. And instead of living for sin, He wants us to live for Him and for God. Jesus came the first time as a king to die in the place of sinners. And when He comes again as king, He's going to come to destroy His enemies. And so now is the time to make terms of peace with this King. Now is the time to come to this King for salvation. And if you are saved, then now is the time to find joy in the knowledge that God has seen fit to bring you into this amazing story that centers on Jesus Christ. And so in response, we're going to sing here in a moment, tell me the story of Jesus. But let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for this genealogy, this section of Scripture that just tells us that You are the Christ. You are the Son of David, the, the seed of Abraham, the One who was promised, the One through whom all of Your mission and purposes would be fulfilled.
And thank you, Father, that you have brought us to a time where we can know this Jesus. And we can look back on what you've done and what you've accomplished. And we know then, looking forward, that you will accomplish the rest of your purposes. We pray that we would find joy as your people in this Christ, in this Messiah. And help us to sing about him and his salvation now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.